So to kind of put forth a little bit of understanding of why I've put these out here. If we could uh, have a word of prayer here before we start. Our Heavenly Father, I just thank and praise Thee, Father, for being able to come before Thee. And I, Heavenly Father, I just feel so unworthy. And I just pray and ask, Father, that You would guide and direct me in this lesson. I pray, Father, the words that You would desire to have spoken, Father, from my lips would be of Thee. And I just pray and ask, Father, for that merciful grace and guidance upon all those that have gathered here this, this day, Father. May we ever just praise and glorify the, the name, Father, of thy Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we have gathered here this morning during Passover, I have the task of speaking on the trials and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, 45 minutes will seem like an eternity to you and seconds to me. In fact, I should probably start the timer now, shouldn't I? And it's set wrong. Oh, boy. <laughs> I wish I would have become a musician. That would have sounded a lot better. All right. And I actually give myself minutes this time. I've been known to give myself 46 seconds. So, all right. The crucifixion of Christ is so terrible and horrible that we tend to overlook or forget other shameless events that leading up to it. The trials that Jesus went through were unfair from the beginning to the end. Jesus was treated so grossly and wickedly that Satan must have blushed and not even Satan can control sin. The time, this time of Jesus' trials has to be the lowest point in all history. Judas betrayed, Peter denied, ten apostles ran for cover, four puppet rulers, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod, judged the judge. And they deeply respected Sanhedrin, become a lynch mob. Now the holiest city, Jerusalem, and the city of law, Rome, united to produce the greatest legal farce in history. Now, the only one in control was Jesus, and I referenced there in John 10, 17, and 18, and 19, 10 and 11. Now, he had deliberately chosen to go to Jerusalem. And that's referenced in Luke 9, 15, or 9, 51. And now his hour had come, as Christ had stated. He forced his enemies to take action by both provoking and facilitating his own arrest. Can we see this? Today Christ has been reduced to a dear, soft, nice Jesus. No. He was a man among men. Not a glorified weakling. He took on Satan, Judaism, and the whole world in one. He never retreated from anybody. Now, to fully understand the trials, which is what I would like to discuss here today, I'd like to discuss the judges of our Savior to kind of help to build what is not really spoken of that much in the Gospels. But it helps us to understand and to look at the times in which we are now in and realize that much like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. But before we do that, let's discuss the setting of Jerusalem. 
Now, when the temple and city were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, the ruins remain, have, have remained for buried for nearly two millennia. Now, during the War of Independence in 1948, the Jewish quarter of the old city was largely destroyed by the Jordanians, and it remained that way for over 19 years until Israel retook the old city during the Six-Day War of 1967. Now, after this six-day war, they had a renovation of this Jewish quarter, which was 1967-1982. There was an ancient site uncovered during that time, revealing spectacular finds. Now, the, they found a luxurious Second Temple period residential quarter in the upper city of Jerusalem. And because of its grandeur and opulence, it was named the Herodian Quarter, also known today as the Wohl Museum of Archaeology. Now, they descended down about nine and three-quarter feet below the top of the ground, and they went back about 2,000 years in time. And they found the upper city of Jerusalem in the Herodian period. And I'll get into what exactly would have been meant by the Herodian period. Now, the archaeological remains of the cellars of six luxurious homes, they believe they were probably then two stories in height, provide a vivid picture of the inhabitants' wealth. And yes, I said wealth. Numerous storage rooms, reservoirs, bathhouses, and ritual baths, ovens, colorful mosaics, frescoes, which basically was, they had wet plaster and they would have water-soluble pigments that they would throw on it. So basically, it was a fancy way of saying they had painted walls. And that evidently, at that time, was not, uh, you and I would not have had painted walls like we do now. And they also had elegant household items and other decorative adornments that led archaeologists to conclude that the residents enjoyed a very, very high standard of living. And one such home even had a menorah magnificently carved in a stone wall. And they said this was the oldest explicit depiction of the menorah, and it was probably carved by a person who has actually witnessed the menorah in the temple. Now, on the eastern side of the site, they arrived at a row of columns that they called a peristyle. And basically, that's a, a four-sided porch, a covered porch that on four sides has columns. So, if you can imagine, that was very, uh, I guess you could say it was somewhat like the, the Parthenon in a way. It was just a, a very large, very expensive porch. Now, but this peristyle building testified to the wealth of the neighborhood and how the inhabitants designed their homes meticulously in the Greco-Roman style that was popular in those times. Isn't it amazing? Even back then, we were trying to keep up with everybody. <laughs> a little further down, there was a beautiful mosaic found in the reception hall of another very elegant residence, and it's become known as the Palatial Mansion. Now, the largest and most splendid of these houses uncovered in the site, probably inhabited by one of the families of the high priest, and they have not, as of this morning, located at any archaeological site a runway for the hangar of the high priest jets. But we'll keep you posted. Now, as I stated, I, I give you, some of you should have this copy here of the city of Jerusalem. And as I go through this lesson here, you may be able to glance down and see as far as how far it would have been for Christ to have actually had to have walked for the trials that were carried and how far it would have been to have actually walked outside of Jerusalem as well. 
for the timeline. But the question I'd look to, like to look at first here is, when did Jesus' troubles all begin? So if we could take up our Bibles this morning, and let's open to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And I'd like to begin in verse 33. Actually, um, I'd like to begin in verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto him, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And thus he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but also he should gather together in one the children of the God that were scattered abroad. And in verse 53, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. To put him to death. They wanted Jesus dead, not just run out of town. So if we could, let's turn over now to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, and I'd like to begin in verse 37. Luke 21, 37. And in that daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at the night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And in Luke chapter 19, in verse 45, it says, And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it the den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So Jesus goes into the temple and cleans house. He overturns tables and calls men thieves and then teaches in the temple. So I have a question. Why was there no rioting? Okay, I have two questions. Why were the people not upset at Jesus for making a mess in the temple? In verse 48 of Luke 19, it states, For all the people were very attentive to hear him. Why wasn't he considered a madman? 
especially so close to a feast. In Luke chapter 19, verse 47, it says that only the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. Now the chief priests would be meaning the members of the Sanhedrin. In Luke 22, if we could turn there, they now have a solution to their problem. In Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, And then then entered Satan in a Judas named Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. I was really hoping when I would look up the name Judas Iscariot that it would actually have some type of significant meaning that would really give credence to who he was. And I was disappointed, I must admit, because Iscariot basically just meant the men of Kirioth. Well, Kirioth, there was two instances when that's mentioned, and that was in the land of Moab. It didn't really give me much about Judas. It really did not. Now, the Gospels record that after his arrest in Gethsemane, Jesus was brought to the palace of the high priest. And that's found in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 3. It's also in Mark 14, verse 54, and in Luke 22, 54. Which high priest? And isn't there only one high priest? Or is there a high, higher, and highest? Uh, No, there's one high priest. Now, what's interesting is only John gives more specific detail. And there's been debate among scholars of why is that? Why did only John speak of this man? And they say it's actually answered in that because it says in his own writings that he in and I quote here, was known to the high priest. John was known to the high priest. So John is therefore the only one that mentions that Jesus was led to Annas first. In verse, that's John chapter 18, verse 13. Now, although Caiaphas was acting as the high priest, he was also the son-in-law to Annas. So Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 AD and was succeeded by his five five of his sons and then by his son-in-law. Now it's interesting to note in that Luke chapter 3 verse 2, both Annas and Caiaphas were called high priests. It shows that Annas still had considerable influence and that he was the only one who was actually calling the shots behind the scenes through his five sons and also through his son-in-law. The reason being is is that the Romans actually appointed whom they wanted to be high priests. It was no longer part of the tradition of the elders to be able to have the high priest brought forth. And I may have time to get into that a little bit later here. Now, so why... Why would Jesus first be led to Annas? I believe that Annas wanted to show his authority, but also that he had a grudge to settle. This was personal. You see, when Jesus drove out the money changers, 
and another reference for that would be Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. The sons of Annas were apparently among them, if not the most important ones. This money-changing business normally took place in what was called the royal stoa. Now, if you look at your Jerusalem here, you'll see that on the Temple Mount, we have the, the temple steps, and at the temple steps there, it's, it's kind of hard to read, but the royal porch. That is what is technically called the royal stoa. But it would appear that on this occasion, when Christ was driving these men out, that the market had spilled over from the stoa into what is called the soreg, and it's also known beyond the middle wall of partition, basically where the Gentiles were separated out from Israel. When Jesus, in that same passage, quoted God's words through Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He would not have referred excuse me, referred to the royal stoa or royal porch, but to the sacred 500 cubic square precinct that was inside. And as to Jesus' accusation that the merchants had made it a den of thieves, there is abundant confirmation that this, through sources that there was extortionate prices charged to those who brought sacrificial animals and also to those, they wouldn't allow you to just use anything to pay a tribute. You had to use what they said was tribute money and they could create much like we have today where our, val our value of our dollar is based on what somebody else decides it is pretty much it was the same in that time now who would have had permission to do so inside the area of the Soreg the Gentiles would not have had permission it was only the high priests if not the sons of the high priest exclusively. Now the high priestly family of Annas was very powerful and Annas used favoritism, some call it nepotism, to get his sons into the most important offices of the temple, thereby controlling the temple treasuries as well. Now, I've got a really good source of information here called the Talmud, which says, and I quote, they even say that some of their priests were called great hoarders of money. So hoarding goes way back. So John tells us that Jesus was led to Annas first, but also that soon after that, the chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people were assembled in the same palace. Now, once again, that was referencing Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22. Now, it says that after this interrogation, Anna sent Jesus to Caiaphas, and that's referenced in, in John 18, 24. And I should say after interrogation and beating. Now, it is doubtful that this meeting with Annas would have taken place in the house of Caiaphas, because only the large palace of Annas could have been able to accommodate so many people, and only Annas could have afforded a wealthy mansion such as the palatial mansion, which has been excavated. Now, although identification of the palatial mansion as the palace of Annas remains for debate, it's, it's debatable. There, there is one very unique aspect of this palace. Uh, I actually got to see the, the picture of one of the archeologists that had been working on the site that he took with his daughter. And he speaks of there the re, in the reception room, he says, after Peter had denied the Lord, and that's referenced in 2261 of Luke, 
While standing in a corner of the courtyard, there would have been an excellent view for Peter to have been viewed by Christ. And it was the only spot in that room to where you would have had Christ standing and where he would have been able to have turned and seen Peter in the courtyard where Peter would have stationed himself for a quick get out of there. So did Caiaphas have any preconceived notions of Jesus? Now, the Sanhedrin was basically the Supreme Court of Israel at that time. And it consisted of 71 members, with one being the high priest. And they, it's kind of interesting because they basically had two parties, political parties, you might say. They had the Pharisees and they had the Sadducees. Now, during this time of history, the Sadducees had control of the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. So one has to ask oneself, what does, what does or what did the Sadducees believe? Well, the Sadducees refused to go beyond the written Torah. And for those younger people of you, the, the written Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And I'm not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, no. We're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their pretty much sole essence of what they believed. So thus, unlike the Pharisees, they denied the immortality of the soul, bodily resurrection after death, and according to the Acts of the Apostles, and, and that's found in 23 verse 8, they also didn't believe in the existence of angelic spirits. So what is the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The main difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was their differing opinions on the supernatural aspects of religion. Isn't it interesting uh, that Mr. Merritt also alluded yesterday, to those of you that were able to, to uh, catch Seth's lesson, that the modern ch church is afraid of supernatural as well. To put things simply, the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels, demons, heaven and hell and so on, while the Sadducees did not. And they basically believe live for today because today is all there is. No resurrection, no eternal life. Now there's nothing biased about Caiaphas at all, is there? It was important to quickly do away with this Jesus, for he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. The Sadducees, part of the motivation for them is they were some of the wealthiest in all of Israel. And we know what the scripture says about rich men. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. Of interest in, in John chapter 18, was all of these trials were done at night. Now, to put that into perspective, if we think about it, Christ hadn't slept for over 24 hours. And he now stood, he was bound for hours, and he had suffered beatings and mockings. So that, I'll take a moment here to read for you. Scholars believe that in this trials, there was actually 18 mosaic rules that were broken. 
that made this a total farce from the very beginning. And I'll read those for you now. The trial of Jesus was a capital trial. Therefore, the crimes of the accused were punishable by death. Now that made that there were even more rules for capital trials to make sure that they were fair. A life was on the line. And scholars say that Jesus' trial, as I said, broke 18 of these. The testimony, number one, the testimony of an accomplice was not allowed. Therefore, Judas could not accuse or witness against Christ. And the accused could not be questioned by a private individual. Christ was taken to Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, and the former high priest, and then he was taken to Caiaphas. No legal proceedings could take place at night. The Sanhedrin could not bring charges. Witnesses had to do that, but indeed the Sanhedrin brought charges when they sought for and brought in false witnesses. And most times we don't necessarily see it saying the Sanhedrin, but when it speaks of a chief priest, most times it's Sanhedrin, if not all. Now, capital offenses could not be tried on a preparation day. Oops. For a Sabbath or a high holy day. And the Passover began the next evening. Capital trials had to last more than one day to allow for great consideration on the part of the judges. There had to be two or three agreeing witnesses and they, they, the witnesses had to cast the first stones at the criminal. If witnesses were untruthful, they were to receive the same punishment themselves. The accused had to have a friend in court to defend him. Jesus had none. No one can accuse himself. Jesus agreed that he was and is who he claimed to be. I really liked this one. The high priest is not allowed to grandstand. When Caiaphas rent his clothes and accused Christ of blasphemy, he was grandstanding. Look at me. Follow me. The accused must be given ample time to defend himself of any accusations. And I assure you that's quite hard if you're blindfolded and being slapped around. If with a capital crime the decision is unanimous, this one, this one just blows me away. I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this one. If with a capital crime the decision is unanimous of the whole Sanhedrin against the accused, against, he's found guilty, the case is actually thrown out. That, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. But if everyone found him, if they all voted crucify him, which that's another thing, they did not believe in crucifixion, the Sanhedrin, you were by stones. Any members of the Sanhedrin who may have defended Christ were not invited to this court session. The court found unanimously against Jesus, so he should have walked free. And also the trial was had at Caiaphas' palace instead of at the proper court. Now what's been recorded is that the next morning part of the Sanhedrin convened at the proper place trying to make things look legal. Now any sort of bribery disqualifies a member of the court. The court bribed Judas to turn on Christ. The judges are not allowed to assault the, crew, uh, the accused. 
I can't imagine today walking into a court. I'm sure the judge would like to assault some of the accused. But what type of order would that be showing to anybody if the, if the judge is, is dealing out punishment, which he is not actually authorized to do so? And when the Sanhedrin took Jesus before Pilate, hoping for a death sentence to be carried out, according to Roman law, they changed the charges from blasphemy to treason. So they, now they've switched. Well, it didn't work in our, yeah, well, okay. We'll go over here. We'll get... We need somebody else to do our dirty work. That way it won't be on us, they thought. And that was illegal under the law of Moses. Now those were just 18 points, as I stated, that should have thrown this whole trial out. But it didn't, it continued on. If we could turn to Luke chapter 23, Christ is now going to be brought before Pilate. And the more I've read concerning this, and the more I've studied of Pilate, I do, there is such debate over, some say he died, some say he committed suicide. It's almost impossible to try to nail down from any other sources what perhaps happened to Pontius Pilate. And I've also read, I believe it's this pseudepigrapha was the, uh, the book of Nicodemus, which is very, very interesting. And it has more of a dialogue of what we might have heard for the trial with Pilate. But in Luke chapter 23, I'd like to begin in verse 1. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, and this is the, the chief priest, We found this fellow perverting the nation and for, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest. Pilate saw through all of these chief priests. And as we had the reading this morning in the book of Matthew, he seen that it was because of envy that they were doing these things. So then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. Something else we also have to remember is Pilate normally would have done this in, I believe it was called the Praetorium, but instead, because the Jews would not go into there because they would be defiled then and not able to keep the Passover, he had to come out to them. So they stood outside with Jesus. It's six in the morning, it's believed. And I don't know about y'all, but I wouldn't be very uh, inviting to someone that had gotten me up. But they say that that is normally, that, is, that was normal. That is when you actually, if you wanted to have a court case put before Pilate, you would have to show up early. And they were in a hurry to get this done. And he said in verse 5, And there were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching them throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now when Pilate heard of Galilee, 
he asked whether Christ was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, off to Herod he went. I was intrigued by that. That's partly why you have the, as part of what was handed out to you, you also have the uh, Herod's lineage. Because it's actually, it's amazing how much one man's family affected all of Christianity. Now when Pontius sent Christ before Herod, it says that in in dropping down to, uh, let's go to verse 8. It says, and when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he had hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Have you ever stopped to wonder all these miracles that were done, and how there were so many unbelieving people, and especially those that were supposed to be the, the shepherds of the flock, the ones that were supposed to be guiding, looking, and telling everyone, he's here, he's amongst us. Now, it says that it, then he questioned him with many words, but Christ answered him nothing. But it says that the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. One of the interesting things is for years they said Pontius Pilate that it was that the book of, that this writing of Christ was not factual, that they didn't have any archaeological evidence to back it up. Then they uncovered, they, they call it the Pilate Stone. What's interesting is upon this Pilate Stone, which talks about Pontius Pilate, and that he was the uh, prefect of Judea. He was the prefect of a Judea, and Herod was basically the prefect of Galilee. And that is why he sent him unto Galilee. It's much like if, if we do a crime here in Vernon County is where we live, but yet we go and do one in Cedar County. Cedar County is the ones that will actually deal with us because it happened in their county on some crimes, not all. So he's before Herod. Now, what I'd like to do is to, is to go back in history here a little bit. I have enough time. Because I had never really wrapped my head around all of which Herod, when you read through scripture, Herod, you automatically, for me, thought Herod the Great. But there's other Herods. And then the Herod that Christ went before was Herod Antipas. But he was the son of Herod the Great. Whenever Paul went before King Agrippa, that was also of the lineage of Herod the Great. So let's go back. What I'd like to look to is the concerns, the relation of Herod the Great. He basically was a legacy of Edomites who moved into southern Israel following the Babylonian conquest. Uh, Several centuries later, once the Romans were in control of that region, they called that region Idumea, after the Edomites who repopulated it. And would you like to guess where Herod the Great was born? Idumea. In Beth-Gurin, near today's Mersha, and to be precise, Herod himself was an Idumean, a descendant of Esau. 
What is interesting and ironic is about this area that it had been the site of a one-off anomaly of Jewish history. And that too may have played a huge part in the life of Herod the Great. Remember how Judea became something of a political volleyball after the death of Alexander the Great and how Antiochus Epiphanes forcibly Hellenized the Jews, took over the temple and profaned the Holy of Holies. Well, the Maccabean revolt that followed eventually threw off the Greek dominion, domination and resulted in the period of what was known as the Hasmonean princes or rulers of Israel. Now that period in then turn ruled to be the last true Hasmonean prince was Hyrcanus, who in a weird and never repeated twist of, twist of history, forcibly converted the Idumean inhabitants of the region of Mershah to Judaism. He also restructured the priesthood of Israel in such a way that the party of the Pharisees would become a politically predominant. And he paved the way for his son, Judas Aristobulus, to become high priest following his father's death. So from that time to the time of the Messiah, the priesthood in Israel was fraught with political intrigue, greed, and power struggles, not the God-given responsibility of shepherding the sheep. So even more significant, though, was a series of typical Roman power shifts, assassinations, and takeovers. The son of one Hyrcanus' most trusted advisors ended up being Rome's man in Judea. That was Herod the Great. An Idumean descendant of Esau who is religiously Jewish in name only, but much more predisposed to exploiting his position and power in the Roman administration over Judea. He was decisive, brutal, and like anyone who makes a murder of way of life, more and more paranoid as the years progressed. His father, Herod the Great, or the, Herod the Great was the one who, you know, sought to kill all the young children when Christ was born. Perhaps Herod's greatest fear was directed towards his political friends in Rome. He had no greater fear than losing his place in the Roman hierarchy. And I'd like to have us to recall again the reading that we did as far as how the, the priests, the chief priests and the scribe, they were concerned about losing their place in part in Rome. In 37 BC, the Roman Senate declared Herod the king of the Jews, and he had no intentions of being displaced. He was Rome's perfect stooge in Judea. Herod had to both placate the common, well-intended Jewish populace as well as maintain control over the political savvy, power-hungry, and very dangerous priesthood. So how could he do that? And they say his motivation was power. Herod the Great found his answer in the construction of the Great Temple Mount Complex. It was a favor to the common Jews that no one could disrespect and it was leverage against anyone in the pseudo-priesthood that feared they would be excluded from Herod's gravy train. The Jews could say, look at that beautiful temple Herod built. He's Jewish, you know, and feel secure. The priests could say, well, they couldn't say anything. Lest they incur Herod's wrath and get kicked out of the club. But they, continue, they could continue building their personal wealth and power, as well as fleecing the flock. And true believing Jews could look at the temple and hope, maybe Messiah will come home soon. So in a nutshell, that's who Herod the Great was and how it was that God used a Roman appointed Idumean to build a Jewish temple complex to which Messiah did indeed come and Rome itself ultimately destroyed.
we could turn once again now to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, I'd like to start verses 1 through 6. 19, 1 through 6. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. He's already released Barabbas. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, the King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. How many of you have ever watched the slapping contest? Is anybody? Am I alone? Okay. It is amazing to me that some men, the amount of a slap that they can take. It truly is. And some of them, you, you see some of the smallest guys and flat out knock a guy out from a slap. My point in saying that is, is that these Romans despised Christ. Anybody that was put up for a crucifixion was an absolute disgrace. Only, the only Romans that were actually done this way was soldiers that had sought to run away, deserters. They were the ones that would suffer crucifixion. So don't think at any point in time that the, I mean, you have to, you, we have no concept of the brutality that the, the cage fighting doesn't even put a light to what our Lord Jesus suffered. So it says, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate found no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. And it says, The chief priests and the officers therefore saw him, and they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And we have to remember to keep in context, too, that his wife had already contacted him. And he obviously loved his wife and respected her, telling him to leave this man alone, that she'd had dreams. And that would probably tell me that she didn't really have dreams that often. And for her to actually contact him and tell him, Pilate was in a spot, much like many of us may be today in. And he went again unto the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? And I can see his frustration. You know, speak up. You know, no, don't you know I have the power to release you? Or crucify thee. And Christ's words were, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, see, they're crafty. If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. 
Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat. See, until this time it had been a trial. Pilate hadn't sat in the judgment seat to actually cast a judgment upon it. But now he's reached the point of frustration. He's been threatened. Set him down in the judgment seat. In verse 15, he says, he had told him, behold your king. In verse 14, and they said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So therefore then he delivered them unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. I've probably done more studying than I ever have trying to figure out on the crucifixion. You'll find more debate than I ever thought was possible concerning how, where. But what I'd like to do is tell what I do know. The crucifixion was performed by the teams of well-trained Roman soldiers. Soldiers carried out the crucifixions. And each team consisted of what was called the exactor mortis or centurion and four soldiers called the quartunero. Now they were carried out in full view outside the city walls of Jerusalem in a hilly region called Calvary or Golgotha. And it was easier. They say that there's a lot of agreement upon the scholars that the actual cross was only about seven and a half to eight feet high. And they say because it was a lot easier to lift the cross piece up. They say that the poles were already pre-mounted in the ground and reused. And that basically they were low to the ground for a reason. And the reason that they were low to the ground was is because you have to remember if you were crucified, you were absolutely despised, disgraced, rejected. When we hear of Nicodemus and Jer Joseph of Arimathea being able to take down and take the body of Christ, that was somewhat unknown. You were put low on a cross so that the animals could help to finish you off. That was the purpose and why it was done outside the city that, that you have to remember you were absolutely ashamed. You would be hung on the cross. When they speak of, I'll just, I have one slight demonstration that I had these great plans, but uh, Time doesn't allow, but I think with, with belts I can actually perhaps show a better, a little bit of an understanding. Whenever they say someone was scourged, scourging was done by, it was called a, a flagellum. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I, I'm sure all you English people will straighten me out. Basically it was 
two to three cords of leather. They said it, a lot of times it was made out of ox hide. Usually they extended, they had a handle and extended in and about 13 to 18 inches. You would be bound. Some, they believe that you would be bound with your arms up above you and held up. Others say that you would be actually draped over something and your hands cupped into something. But the, the instrument that was used, and, and mind you, these men would change places if they got tired. But they had basically two to three cords that were on this. And as we know, Christ received 39 lashes. The interesting thing about something like this is, is they had, on the belts here, you can see you have buckles at the end, but they had weights. Some of them were brass. Some of them were actually pieces of sheep that they had put on it. And they may do it in multiple intervals throughout that. And they also had one flagellum that had hooks on the end of it. And that one had a special name. They called it the scorpion. But the whole intent and purpose of this, because the actual Latin word used for this actually comes into to our, uh, the English language is the word flay. So this was to flay people. Flay, not flay. And the problem you have with these is these men had to be skilled too because you were trying to beat a person near to death but not to death and then be able to drag them out to the cross. With these cords, they would try and if you, I'm trying not to kill myself, whenever they slap, they wrap. That was one of the things, I don't know for those of you that may have seen the Passion of the Christ, the man that played Christ, uh, Jim Cavizio, stated that once during that scene, it actually got through and hit him just once. And he said the pain and the agony was excruciating. The reason being is these were weighted heavy and you had men that were built swinging these things. This was their job and they liked their job. Have you ever seen the little child? I mean, maybe they were all psychopaths. I don't know. But the little child that always that likes to kill things or whatever. These men, did this was their job and they took it personally. They liked it. But whenever you swing something over this and it would smack a person, it would wrap. And then when they jerk it back, it rips and cuts. They would stay away from the stomach area because when you got to the stomach area, you would disembowel someone. And they would bleed out. You wouldn't have the joy of nailing them to the cross to finish your job. Christ had already been beaten, slapped, smacked, and scourged. He had a crown of thorns upon his head. And that crown, the interesting thing about having a crown of thorns upon your head is there's actually two main nerves that run into your scalp. That that would have constantly been involved in. When Christ was in Gethsemane, there were, he had, he had a, a rare condition which is called hematidrosis. And that occur, may occur in the cases of extreme anxiety. And they say it's caused by fear. And it's also known as the, well, it manifests as sweat that contains blood 
or blood pigments. What they've learned is that anxiety due to intense fear affects the autonomic nervous system. Fear triggers the amygdala, which is the brain's fear center. And the known reaction is as the fight or flight response. And this response results in the following. Profuse sweating, accelerated heart rate, vasoconstriction of blood vessels, and strict increased blood pressure and diversion of blood from non-essential areas in order to increase blood perfusion to the brain and the muscles of the arms and the legs. Skin pallor and decreased function of the digestive system, which may result in vomiting and abdominal cramps. Jesus' fight or flight response lasted several hours as he prayed alone. He was fully man. We can't imagine the amount of pain that he suffered. He prayed alone while his apostles slept nearby. He would have been completely exhausted and dehydrated because of his uh, diaphoresis and vomiting. And the diaphoresis is is the, the profuse sweating. Now when the angel appeared to give him strength, he would have then had a sudden and complete reverse action. Now reaction, that exactly would have resulted in a severe dilation and rupture of blood vessels into the sweat glands and it caused hemorrhage into the ducts of the sweat glands. Now, the injuries occurred during, scourging were extensive. As I said, blow to the upper back and rib area, most likely most times cause rib fractures, severe bruising in the lungs, bleeding into the chest cavity, and a partial or complete puncture wound to the lung would cause it to collapse. And basically, they say about four ounces of blood would be lost. Doesn't seem like much, but you have to factor in everything else that had happened to Christ as well. They say the victim would periodically vomit, experience tremors and seizures, and have bouts of fainting. Each excruciating strike would elicit shrieks of pain. The victim would be profusely sweating and exhausted. The flesh mangled and ripped and would crave water because of the loss of blood from bleeding and also the loss of fluids from sweating profusely. And the steady loss of fluid would initiate what is called hypovolemic shock. While a slow, steady accumulation of fluid in the injured lungs would take a, make breathing difficult. And his fractured ribs as well would make breathing painful and the victim would only be able to take short, shallow breaths. They also say that the scourging could actually lacerate the liver and the spleen as well, which would cause even heavier bleeding. The nerve supply for pain Perception to the head region is distributed by two major nerves. Uh, The trigeminal nerve, which simply supplies the front half of the head, and the greater occipital branch, which supplies the back half of the head. Now, these two nerves basically affect all the areas of the head and the face. And the trigeminal nerve, also known as the fifth cranial nerve, runs through the face, eyes, nose, and jaws, mouth and jaws, An irritation of this nerve by the crown of thorns would have caused a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. Now this condition causes severe facial pain that may be triggered by light touch, and he's been slapped, remind you, 
Swallowing, eating, talking, temperature changers, and exposure to wind. Stabbing pain radiates around the eyes, over the forehead, the upper nose, cheek, and the side of the tongue and the lower lip. So as the soldiers struck Jesus on the head with reeds, they would have, he would have felt excruciating pains across his face and deep into his ears, much like the sensations from a hot poker or electric shock. These pains would have been felt all the way to Calvary and while on the cross, as he walked and fell, and as he was pushed and shoved, and as he moved any part of his face, and as the slightest breeze touched his face, waves of intense pain would have been triggered. The pain would have intensified his state of tra traumatic shock. Now, he would have been growing increasingly weak and lightheaded as well. He would have had a bouts of vomiting, shortness of breath, and unsteadiness as his shock intensified. I know there's been a lot of discussion that I found as far as the nailing of, of Christ's hands. Disagreement. As far as there are those that say that he couldn't have been supported by the palms of his hand. And you have those that say that it was through the wrist. And The Greek word for hand, uh, one of the instances in Acts 12, 7, when it talks about the chains fell off of Peter's hands. Well, I haven't really seen a man bound by chains on his fingers or his hands. You would think the wrist. And there's other, other instances in Scripture and stuff when it speaks of wrist. So it could very well have been. But the visual that we've always all had is that it was in the palm of his hand. And what, there was a stabbing victim that uh, a doctor got to studying because one of the things that we're told as well is that not a bone was broken. So to try and put it through a hand, it would be hard not to break a bone. But what this man found was is there was a, a thing called the thinar furrow, I believe. And it basically had to do with the... the the nail may come in like so and then come out through here and be able to totally support but yet not tear. But that being said, it also had a lot of nerves that went through as well and they say the pain that one would experience from that is unimaginable. They've actually taken, and believe it or not, they've had people that volunteered to hang on crosses to try and figure out what may have happened or what could have happened. Because the biggest discussion out there is, is was it, did he die of asphyxiation or did he die from hypovolemic shock? And that no one would ever be able to, only Christ and the Father know that. My thoughts today that I would hope that we all might be able to take away from this is that are we trading the pursuit of Jesus Christ for worldly pleasures and status? Are we more interested in our own well-being? And are we like Pontius Pilate afraid to seek and speak the truth? I would pray that this Passover that each of us would be able to, to come away with not only a sense of hope and a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but a renewed spirit in, in seeking to truly follow Him. Thank you for your time today.